Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is the morning of November the 26th, Thanksgiving Day in the United States. I'm not sure if it's a very good Thanksgiving, though, for American conservatives. They just lost the presidential election. And now they seem to be sliding into civil war. There was a very interesting piece this morning um, in the National Review by uh, Victor Davis Hanson about Trump and facing his future, whether to run, whether not to run. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson was on the show, some of you will remember, a couple of months ago, talking about Trump. He's a defender of Trump and a conservative. Other conservatives, though, strongly disagree. Uh, we had the very distinguished American political essayist, Peter Weiner, on the show, arguing that his opposition to Trump proved he was a conservative. And then there are former conservatives who seem kind of confused about what they are in, uh, in 2020. Anne Applebaum, in particular, written a wonderful book about authoritarianism, ex-conservative, ex-liberal, who knows what Anne is, but she's certainly adding to the voice. Um, and there's an enormous debate amongst conservatives, not only Weiner, Applebaum, but people like David Frum, who are adding an enormous intellectual ferment to both the current state and future of conservatism. So probably some of you will wonder yourself, well, what exactly is conservatism? And that is the subject of today's show. Um, Edmund uh, Fawcett is the author of a wonderful new history of conservatism called, appropriately enough, Conservatism. So uh, Edmund, to, to kick you off, an easy question, what exactly is conservatism? Well, I think I couldn't do better than your introduction, Andrew, because conservatism, as the subtitle of my new book says, is a fight for a tradition. And it's a fight in two senses. It is a fight for a tradition because conservatives, let's face it, they promise order and stability and tradition. But on the other hand, since the get-go, early in the 19th century, they have been fighting for what for ownership of the tradition. Who is the true conservative? And that fight continues, just as you have described it. It preceded Trump, it'll outlast Trump. And you see it across the Europe as well. And in um, what used to be part of Europe, Britain, my country, conservatives are fighting with each other all the time about who owns conservatism. I think that is in a way one of its most distinctive and easily overlooked characteristics. And one it's of its more attractive uh, characteristics, because no one can quite figure out what it is. Uh, to have a fight, of course, uh, Edmund, you need two parties. There are, or there is civil war now, particularly in American conservatism. But your, um, I think the foundations of your book and your, your work over the last 20 years has been this struggle between conservatism and liberalism. You're also the author of another of my favorite books, Liberalism, uh, The Life of an Idea. And my sense is that 
your argument in, in the new book, Conservatism, is very much the second volume of your book about liberalism. You I think that's right. Contemporary conservatism without contemporary liberalism. Is that fair? No, I think that's quite right. And I think from the beginning, um, conservatism and liberalism, they're like um, kind of antagonistic brothers. They they're like bacon and eggs, Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> they're like, I wouldn't put it that way. They're, they're, they're an argument with each other. You don't really have one without the other. I mean, you asked me earlier what conservatism was, and I said it was a fight for a tradition, which is true. But of course, you can't have a fight without a stake. Uh, you can't have a fight without something you're fighting about. And I think conservatives on the whole, they have promised order and stability. And they, you know, they promised the rule of law, they promised um, prevailing distributions of property, cultural tradition, and so forth. Through the 19th century, those very aims drove conservatives to accept what they'd earlier feared and shunned, namely modern capitalism, that great machine of prosperity and invention, which is continually turning society upside down. This obliged them politically to sort of compromise with liberals who are the original champions of modern capitalism. And that, you know, that argument has continued. And you uh, still have- and Are you defining liberalism then as essentially an ideology in favor of capitalism in the market? Is that a core element of liberalism in your mind? It's not a core element. I think it's an essential element. I think liberals historically, they were the, they were the party of the market, but that's far from all that liberals are. And liberals themselves through the 20th century came to see that the, the dream of a completely unfettered market was indeed a kind of, not only a dream, but it could easily turn into a nightmare. So it needed to be tempered. And you therefore, you had the kind of the New Deal, the kind of liberal liberalism that you found in both United States and Europe after 1945, of a very tempered capitalism in which the state played a large part. Edmund, we're going to move on to the history specifically later, but let's deal with foundations first. The beginning sure. of the report, you, you point out four areas where conservatives and liberals disagree, and I think these are core points. Do you want to go over those four points? Very good. Um, the conservative, everybody in politics needs a picture of society, and the conservative one is that society is harmonious. Above all, it's harmonious until it's over-criticized by tiresome intellectuals and the left. Like Liberals you and I. The other. Sorry? Like you and I. Like, like all of us, indeed. Um, I mean, we, we become a kind of, uh, we, we become an enemy. Liberals, on the other hand, look on society as inevitably conflicted, competitive. However, that can be tempered for liberals in, in political argument, in experiment and commercial exchange. Second, are there moral limits to the exercise of power? Uh, conservatives are very big on authority. They're very big on authority as a source of order. Liberals are very suspicious of authority, even you know, leg legitimate authority. And they, they work very hard in institutions and so on to make, um, to sort of set limits on how power can um, exercise itself. The third element in the um, picture is progress. Uh, Conservatives on the whole 
although they may not boast about it very much nowadays in sort of optimistic times when we all have to be hopeful about things, difficult it is at the moment, conservatives tend to stress that life... Yeah, you're sounding like a conservative, uh, Edmund. Uh, well, always claim that we're living in dark times. Liberal always suggests that things are better than they seem, isn't that? Right? Well, we, we can come on to that. That's a, that's a good one. Um, the, the, the decline is very much a conservative motif. But just on the point, conservatives don't believe in, his, in, in progress. Um, liberals, on the other hand, do um, have as an ideal that human life, human society, our arrangements can improve. And third, fourthly, um, conservatives, again, in democratic times, they don't really boast about this very much, but they don't believe in equality. They don't believe that um, everybody merits respect in society, whoever they are. Conservatives are much more um, stressed, much more if in, in old conservatism, stressed rank and status. Nowadays, they stress um, merit and achievement, but they don't believe that every last person in society require, requires sort of public and civic respect. And liberals, they don't always live up to it, but they believe that. So I think on those four points, the two traditions are quite distinctive. Of course, they blur, and the blurring was very well known a long time ago, but they're still, I think, when you schematize them in that way, I think they're still distinctive. Yeah, and I think your, your four points are really useful. It's interesting that you bring up the issue of meritocracy. Yeah. I do want to come back to that. Perhaps the, the most meritocratic of all games is chess. And you present <laughs> the struggle between liberalism and, and conservatism as this ongoing chess game. You have a wonderful, uh, a wonderful line at the beginning of the book. Were politics chess, liberals had white. They moved first. Why, yep. why did liberals have the first move, Edmund? Um, the liberals were the ins. I mean, when modern politics starts, you asked about history. Let's go back a moment. Um, early 19th century, the liberals moved first. What, they, were, um, they were for the market. They were for industrial capitalism. They were for sweeping away old authorities, old ways of um, ruling. They were for sweeping away old kinds of cultural authority. So they were, as it were, the inns. They were on the, they were on the, on the march. Conservatives were on the defense, like black in chess. But as time went on, and this is where conservatism revealed its great political strengths, they learned a lot from liberals. They learned a lot from Democrats and slowly, they became, um, they began to master the modern game to pursue the metaphor. And if you look at the record, the conservative parties, the, the parties of the political right have dominated modern politics. This is very different from the standard picture in the conservative press and conservative media as, you know, this, this poor, figure that is that is drowned out by the angry voices of, of, of the left. This is complete nonsense. The, the conservatives actually have dominated political life in Europe and the United States much of the 20th century. And they, even in the media and academic life, they're very important too. Well, let's go back to the beginning, Edmund. And um, I think like many people, you date the beginning of the contemporary conservative movement with the French Revolution. Um, yep. Here we have the great image from Delacroix of that revolution. Why is the French Revolution in many ways the beginning of modern conservatism? Um, 
Well, to be, be picky about it, um, it, the French Revolution s set out and produced a number of critics. Um, Edmund Burke is the most famous. You have this triangle, Edmund. Uh, the, the there were many others. Joseph the Triangle Demesque. of Burke. Uh, Chateaubriand uh, and, uh, and uh, the Chateaubriand. Yeah, um, and, that, so, and, and these all guys all sort of um, they all seem to have been uh, that 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 their thinking all seems to have been triggered by, in their mind at least, the failure of the French Revolution. Indeed, and what what did they what what was the main point that these three I call them proto pre-conservatives they handed on to the conservative tradition a thought that was extremely important, which was that what was what were the sort of deeper um, causes of the French Revolution? It wasn't sort of cutting off of heads. That wasn't the trouble. For all these three, the deep trouble was into political intellectuals, political critics of existing society who promised better arrangements, surer institutions than those that had grown up organically. And they each in their way, they, given the bloodshed of the French Revolution, I mean, it was, uh, I don't know if it was a straw man, but it was, uh, it was an easy argument for people like Burke to make. Well, but curiously, I mean, Burke, actually, he made his, he made his argument well before the, the for the terror. It was only much later when Burke was kind of rediscovered at the end of the 19th century that he was seen somehow as a, um, as, as a prophet of, of the terror. And, um, it really wasn't the the bloodshed that that provided conservatives with their strongest argument. It was the intellectual disruption of tradition, and I think this was what these three handed handed on. Do you think that there's a, an element of um, intellectual jealousy of the the sexiness of the drama of the revolution, the sexiness of the promise of liberalism? Well, all, pol all politics is, is an elite business. Most of us, most of the time, are busy with every, you know, with, with other life, thank goodness. You know? I mean, it's hard to compete with and, and hang, hang on, and, and intellectuals, um, they have been, they, they kind of lead, they're, they're a very important part of politics, and they're right-wing intellectuals and left-wing intellectuals. And of course, they're always fighting with each other. So you're quite right. I think there was an element of, um, sort of intellectual competition involved in in these disputes. It's interesting reading your book. Your first phase, you you divide conservatives, contemporary uh, modern history into four phases. The first phase, eighteen thirty to eighteen eighty, yeah. which you title "Resisting Liberalism," is the least sexy. It's ironic that the, <laughs> as you suggested earlier, the more modern conservatism becomes the sexier, the, the more attractive and the more successful it is. What happened in this first phase, Edmund, between 1830 and 1880? Well, in the, in, in the first phase, actually, it was the, it was the picture we, we, we saw was the 1830 revolution, when the, um, there was in, in Paris, in France, there was a last throw here, here we go. There was a last throw of the old French monarchy. And um, it lasted until 1830, until finally it, it was kicked out. Um, and the, the early uh, unsexy phase of conservatism, as you descri well describe it, is a long period in which conservatives are the outs. They're kicked out in France, they fail in England, 
they um, are under great pressure in Germany. The United States is a bit complicated, but let's leave that aside for the moment. And the conservatives are the outs. And what are they doing? They are slowly, grindingly, successfully getting back to become the ins. So this, you're right, it isn't a tremendously sexy story. It's very important for the future. But um, in each case, they're, as it were, conservatives are preparing the ground for their latest successes. Well, they're learning to compromise with liberals and Democrats. Uh, as, as a former economist journalist, the, the last thing you are is teleological, Edmund. I assume they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, no. like Andrew Jackson wasn't imagining Donald Trump or uh, the, 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 the British romantic poets weren't, weren't, weren't thinking Roger Scruton. I mean, there, there's no imagination of the future is there back then. No, and they didn't. They didn't talk in, ter in those terms. But I think what they saw, they would do. They they, they were doing. Um, I mean, I wasn't trying. I wasn't attributing a thought of we are preparing a future. I was simply describing the results of what they were doing. Turned out to be the groundwork, the, or the, the yes, the foundations of later conservative successes. I mean, that period was one of enormous change, perhaps the most revolutionary period in all of human history. I mean, we think of the Internet today, but it doesn't compete with the invention of the steam engine and the transformation of rural Absolutely. life. Uh, and this was, of course, the period where Marx wrote his, his wonderful works about bourgeois society and the future of capitalism. Um, it's still not clear to me why conservatives didn't have... Um, didn't have a natural, well, they did have a natural constituency, but why they didn't leave more of a mark, I guess. Um, Are you th you're thinking intellectually? Well, and politically. I mean, I, I, I include it. You didn't put much about Bismarck in your history, but of course, Bismarck was the most influential political figure of the, of, of the 19th century, and he certainly was a conservative, wasn't he? Absolutely. And he, he, um, he provided a model of something that is very important in conservatism is, is its, its, relationship, its relationship to authoritarianism um, in that you can have forms of conservatism as you did in the Bismarck period in Germany, which were, um, they, were they were very liberal in some respects, but they were not um, liberal in political institutional terms and they certainly weren't very democratic. There was a sort of government from the top. But at the same time, it was an authoritarianism that uh, was quite compatible with extraordinary um, intellectual, technological, and economic growth and expansion. And that was characteristic of Germany, but it was that those social changes were characteristic, as you point out, in um, the 19th century, both in the United States and in much of the rest of Europe. And actually, I would guess in this period that the countries that experienced the most dramatic change were Germany and America, because they were, you know, Britain had experienced an early... They caught up with Britain, indeed. I mean, they overtook Britain by almost every indicator by the end of the 19th century. We should also note that your book is not a, a global history of conservatism. It no. focuses on France, Germany, England and America. And I think, I don't know if you, were, you would think this is a fair critique, but I, I think you're probably more focused on the UK and the US than, than Germany or France, but that's uh, the subject of another conversation. Well, that, that you, you, well, I hope that's, I, I hope that 
it's more balanced than that. Um, well, it is, but I, I, I think it, that in some ways the history of conservatism in the UK and the US is been more consequential, certainly in the contemporary age. Let's move on to the second phase, um, Edmund. Adaptation, adaption and compromise. Uh, is this the moment between 1880 and 1945? We have pictures of, of Schumpeter in here. And um, is this the moment that conservatives discovered capitalism? They discovered it before. Schumpeter is a very important figure because he, he um, I think, to me, best expressed um, what use sort of Marxist terminology, you could call the contradictions of capitalism. I mean, he understood, he called it creative destruction. And he understood that modern capitalism was essential as um, an economic engine of prosperity. But at the same time, it was socially extremely disruptive and intellectually hard to um, hard to control. Uh, he, he asked whether um, capitalism could survive. And he's often somewhat misquoted by saying, no, it couldn't. But then he added quickly, well, yes, it could on certain rather stiff conditions, that there was a, a kind of self-confident ruling class, there was an elite bureaucracy, and above all, uh, that it, critical intellectuals were kept under some sort of control. Schumpeter was very important here. Um, the, 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 uh, there were other figures. Um, let me see. I mean, there was the um, yes, there was a, the Mencken on the left, um, who was who the um, ironically, uh, yeah, the guy who kind of rather ran out of steam in the 1920s and 30s. Then there was Schmidt. You mentioned sexy. Schmidt was a very sexy figure, and it's well, had a some anyway. I mean, Carl Schmidt, and, and I think that was one of the sort of the other things I want to talk to you about the second phase. It seems as if conservatism grew from, on the one hand, you have Schumpeter, this sort of ex-Marxist fetishizing capitalism. On the other hand, you have Carl Schmitt, an ex-liberal who becomes a fascist. I wouldn't, yeah, I'm not sure he was ever a liberal. He was always, he was always, he was always on the right. Um, but he was not a, he was not well, a, Nazi. A, a, a sort of a, a palatable, a kosher conservative. Yeah, I mean, why I called him sexy was, yeah. why I called him sexy actually, is, I think this is quite important. Why I called him sexy was because he was one of an extremely eloquent and sharp critic of what we now call liberal democracy, which was emerging in different strengths, different stabilities in Europe and United States in the early 20th century. He was a, fan, he was a critic as was, uh, I don't know whether you've got him there, Charles Maurras, and yeah, other. why he's why he is Morel as well and he's a, another you know interesting french yeah. thinker who sort of tries to reinterpret conservatism yeah and why I, i'm picking up on your word why i call these sexy is that um certainly schmidt um has had a kind of strange afterlife on the left as a critic of um sort of right-wing liberalism or business-minded liberalism the world we live in and um he, he, he um, had a number that actually, when you probe them, they're rather superficial, but um, his arguments, but uh, they, they're very sharp. Um, he, he was a quick study. He was a lawyer and um, they, they've had this strange afterlife and they have some sort of appeal. Well, no conversation about the sexiness of conservatism, Edmund, would be complete without reference to Margaret Thatcher. Um, the sexiest of all contemporary conservatives or relatively contemporary conservatives. 
You move on in the third phase, 1945 to 80, when conservatism, with or without Thatcher and Reagan, the two co-stars of this Hollywood production, um, did indeed become sexy. Why? What happened between 45 and 80 to make conservatism so sexy and successful? I mean, they were a brilliant study, both of them, in the old uh, conservative um, theme of decline. Both of them came up after a difficult decade of um, very big inflation, uh, coupled with high unemployment, um, a feeling that the old um, tempered liberal democratic capitalism um, that we got used to and actually had had great successes after 1945 had run out of steam. And they made an absolutely a quite brilliant um, uh, sort of critique out of that. They were helped by somebody, um, I think he's, you, you've got him there on the, on the right, uh, um, William Buckley pointing right. his finger up. And, and indeed, Buckley, yeah, we have Buckley on the right, and we have, well, I, no, actually, but, well, we come on, William, uh, we come on, my left, on William and Powell. Powell on the right. So, Enoch, Enoch Powell, not yeah, William. So they're sort of the acceptable and unacceptable faces of, of modern right. conservatism. But, but, but I think, you know, you say what, what was sexy about it? I think it was a, it was a fantastically well packaged theme that we needed a change. And, um, they, both of them, after a rocky start, lucked into um, a long period of economic recovery and growth. But it wasn't just luck. I mean, I'm not a conservative, but you've got to be fair to them that they did achieve quite a lot, didn't they? Absolutely. No, no, they were, they were, they, they were I wasn't suggesting it was entirely, entirely a matter of luck, but uh, the, the, the moment was theirs they made they made they made much of their opportunities but it was luck that gave them the opportunities no they there were a lot of changes that were needed making um to push the story forward i think as always with big political movements big political changes of that kind they run out of steam they run out of intellectual direction and one of the things that we have seen in the last 20 years is that the sexy, as you call it, um, Thatcher-Reagan revolution that was imitated in to some greater, more tempered measure in France and Germany, um, that ran out of steam. And well, I'm really, not sure if it ran out of steam. I mean, to extend this metaphor, uh, Edmund, of, of sexiness, we come to our current stage, you call it the fourth phase, 1980 onwards. Hi, you call it hyperliberalism and the hard right, which we mentioned at the beginning. This, this, this political storm brewing over the future of the Republican Party and Trump. In terms of sexiness, would it be fair to say that conservatism went through its pornography stage? <laughs> you could, you could, you could put it that way. I mean, what's it's, happened? Why? Why it, do we it's have? It's not what it's not what they want to put. It's not what conservative. It's not what many conservatives want to put in the front parlor, as it were. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, Marine Le Pen and Donald Trump. Yeah. And Bismarck and Edmund Burke and all the founders of the movement wouldn't they be turning in their graves or throwing up in their graves at the thought of some of these people? I don't think so. I think I think I think they were they recognized power and power and stability when they saw it. I don't think um, I don't think, I, 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 I don't think that, that one. Go back to, not, not we, could have, 
we could uh, we could argue the, argue the toss on that. Well, you know, the, the the hard right in the United States. Let's face it, it preceded Trump and is going to outlast him. Well, talk, um, yeah, and I keep on interrupting. I apologize. But let, let's no, don't worry at all. Uh, let's so go back. So rich in so many areas. It but is very briefly, Edmund. What has happened over the last forty years? Well, I Why think do we I have the Trumps and Le Pens now dominating conservatism. Good. I think. I think. Um, the as it was a Thatcher Reagan, what I call hyperliberal neoliberalism, let's call it, ran out of steam, and it, it you know we we needn't go into all the episodes, but you know the two thousand and eight financial crash didn't help, but it was running out of steam anyway, both intellectually and politically. But the difficulty for the right is that nothing has replaced it. There is no narrative on the mainstream right. And into this vacuum, the figures that you see, um, uh, Buchanan, who is very important, he was like the screenwriter for Trump. If Trump were a movie, um, mm. Buchanan would have been the screenwriter. And Boris Johnson, um, he uh, was really quite ambivalent about leaving Europe, about Brexit for Britain, but um, went for that. and. You know, th that um, decision was another example of where um, there was a vacuum on the right. There was a sort of no sense of strategy or direction. There'd always been a minority of the Tory party that didn't like the European Union. And into that vacuum, the Brexit movement sort of just flooded and was an enormous success. Full transparency, uh, Edmund, of course. Uh, the Boris Johnson you talk about is your nephew. Uh, I hope He is indeed. I hope you've told him this. I did. Um, I mean, as you know, uh, politics divides families and it doesn't um, kill affection. Um, the prime minister has a lot more to worry about than a skeptical left liberal uncle. Um, I've often told him this. Um, in fact, um, just before the referendum, I said, um, change your mind. You'd look like a fool for 24 hours, but you'd be remembered for the next 50 years. Um, he, um, Joanne, I bet he laughed, toasted you and moved on. No, yeah. we do. We don't we don't talk to each other often. I mustn't pretend, but we, you know, we laugh when we do. Uh, but con contemporary conservatism does have a serious side in addition to the Le Pen, Trumps and even Boris Johnson's. Uh, I know that Roger Scruton, you spent some time with him writing your book. Yes. He just died. He's a very serious thinker, isn't he? He is. And he's striking in that. I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that one of the difficulties for conservatism at this moment is that there was only one Roger Scruton. Um, I asked him. He was he was very generous with his time. He, he, he talked to me about what conservatives stood for. He wrote one of the best books on um, uh, called The Meaning of Conservatism, which is 40 years old now. And I asked him who were his interlocutors? You know, who were the people he argued with? We all need people to argue with. We all need to, you know, people to tell us, you know, that's, forgive my French, full of shit. You know, we, the, our arguments don't add up. We all need that. And what has often struck me in reading Roger Scruton's writing, for which I have a huge admiration, and its great breadth and its depth, is that he tends not to have contemporaries with whom to argue. So I said to him, who are your interlocutors? And he said, well, Michael Oakeshott and Eliot. And I stopped him before he got to Hegel. 
And I said, I mean people who are alive. And he didn't think of anybody. I think and I think that's a great... Yeah, I think, I think that uh, is a, a deep difficulty with present-day conservatism is you know, if you look for philosophers who ask really deep probing questions of a kind that, for example, in the liberal tradition, John Rawls did 40, 50 years ago, there's nobody. There are a huge number of extremely clever publicists and you know, critical review writers and people in the think tanks pushing particular policy options. But in terms of a true, deep, conservative thinker, they're not. Yeah, and I that... think, uh, and, and just to, for people watching this, uh, Scruton is the guy in the, uh, the green jacket on my left, looking very different from Pat Buchanan or Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, <laughs> for that matter. This is a subject for another conversation, perhaps, Edmund. I think the future of conservatism probably is ecological and environmental, and that's where Scruton is pretty interesting. He's both a political conservative and, a, uh, and an environmentalist. Um, but that's a, a complicated subject for another show. I wonder, in terms of- I think that's right. I mean, just throw in there. I think, I think there's a, there is a sort of historical sense to writing about his liberalism and conservatism. And to go back to, to, to the Wordsworths and Coleridge's of the world who idealize nature uh, is, is in some ways what Scruton's doing. But talking about the future of conservatism, Edmund, I wonder if the future of conservatism is actually liberalism in the sense that just as in the 19th century, um, conservatives were were mourning and nostalgic for a lost world. The lost world of the 21st century is the world of the industrial liberal meritocracy. We had Michael Sandel on the show a few yeah. weeks ago talking about very interesting guy. His critique of meritocracy. I, I found amongst my liberal friends that they're the most conservative people imaginable. They're terrified of any kind of change because they control everything. And the new world, and who knows what the new world of the 21st century is going to be, but it's not good for liberals. Is that fair? Do you think? Do you think liberals? Well, I think there's two. I think there's, I think there's two, two. I think there's two thoughts there. Um, one is, um, I mean, I don't feel as a as a left wing liberal um, that uh, you know I'm in charge of anything. I, I, right at the beginning of the book, I say I've I've written the book in comradely spirit with a question for the left, I mean, which I think I belong to, which is, if we're so smart, how come we're not in charge? Um, I think it's, it's, a, um, it's a sort of caricature of the right that somehow these left-wing intellectuals dominate the world. But a second thought is that onto this a moment ago, I think there is a historical element to um, liberalism and conservatism in the sense that maybe these are the um, outlooks of a particular phase in a particular part of the world, that although they do carry universal values, the particular form in which those values were expressed and fought over, Europe and the United States, maybe this is passing. Maybe there are, you know, there are going to be other traditions. Well, there are. And indeed, there are major planetary problems. You mentioned the environment that I think neither conservatism nor liberalism address. So I think if you ask me for the future of conservatism and liberalism, I would say possibly we're going to look back on, see them as something 
rather historical and possibly rather local. Well, your book, um, Conservatism, it's wonderful. I don't usually talk for so long, Edmund, but there's so much to talk about. Uh, you could go on a long time. I'm enjoying it. It needs to be read, uh, I think, with your earlier book, Liberalism. But like the triangle that you talk about as the founding conservative triangle, as in any three-way relationship, I think there's something missing. Uh, perhaps I don't know what you're going to do next, but I would love to see you as a left liberal do a history of communism or Marxism, or whatever word you want to use, because I think that's what's missing still from this discussion. You treat liberalism as the left, which it isn't. Um, and if I was to choose a book on top of those two books, it would be uh, Kolakowski's main... Kolakowski's The Main Parents of Marxism. Which would work very well, actually, with your book, because it's deeply historical. Yeah. Um, as I said, people need to read your book. What else? You're, you're stuck in your library in Kensington in London in these strange times, Edmund. What else should people be reading in addition to conservatism, liberalism, and maybe Kolakowski's History of Marxism? I think they should be reading funny books. <laughs> I think this is, this is difficult times for everybody. Well, what are some funny um, books? I mean, amusing books. Um, I mean, everybody's, everybody's going to have... You know, not everybody likes the same jokes. Not everybody likes the same humor. But um, I, I would urge people to read books that make them laugh. And is there a particular book or author? You're gonna, it's going to sound completely, completely off the planet. But um, it's my wife um, recommended it. It's Pliny's Letters. He's a first century Roman. But they are very, very funny. It may sound crazy, but we've been reading them and um, make you laugh out loud. Very droll, very funny, very worldly. And, um, you know, a lot of our problems. There's even a plague and an, a, an, an, an eruption. Well, if you want a good laugh then in our, in our COVID-infested times, read Pliny. <laughs> You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.